0: If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you grab them? We'll be in Proverbs again. We're working through, if you if you attend here regularly, you know that we're working through the book of Proverbs. Um, and today we're going to be in chapter 6. And while you're flipping to that, I want to say a couple of different things. Uh, one, just to echo what... Uh, what Cody said about the baptism, on July 24th, following the service. It won't be during the Sunday morning service. It will be after that. We're going to head to the State Park, Shatteron State Park, and we're going to have an, it's going to be an outdoor baptism. So uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, um, please come see me, or one of the elders, all of our contact information. You can see one of the deacons. All of our contact information is there in the bulletin. And baptism is basically this beautiful picture of Christ. Dying for our sin, you know we're relating to him in that he's we're 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 we're, we're, we died with Christ, and we're raised to newness of life. It is an outward symbol of an inward reality, what really goes on in the heart. If you've not been baptized as a believer, I want to encourage you to consider being baptized on July 24th. Um, And all all we'll need to do is talk to you a little bit, have a little conversation, make sure you're understanding what baptism is, what the gospel is. Uh, But it's appropriate if you haven't been baptized as a believer to follow Jesus Christ and believers' baptism. So come see us before the 24th of July. And we're also going to do a picnic out there. That's going to be our monthly uh, potluck uh, thing. So uh, it should be a nice time. It should be really cool weather. You know how it is in July. It should be great. But stay parked. More information forthcoming. And then the other thing I want to say is, Man, happy Independence Day weekend, right? I mean, this is uh, tomorrow. We celebrate the birthday of our nation. I, you, you know this probably, but um, that's the day that we celebrate the ratification of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. So what is that? I don't know, 246 years. Um, long time. And it is one of the longest ex- running experiments of human freedom. It's, it, we, you ought to, be, we ought to rejoice, A lot of places in this world where gathering like this would not be allowed. Uh, Where where Christians sometimes gather in the back of police cars as they're separated by the authorities. And here we have this beautiful... um, freedom, this bubble of freedom that we can enjoy as Christians. And so I hope you will rejoice tomorrow in in, in, one little line from the Declaration of Independence. It says, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we are created equal, that all men are created equal. And listen to this, that we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them, the right to life. in liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So uh, we have a lot to celebrate this year, especially with with that recent um, Supreme Court ruling. You know, our hope is not in princes. Our hope is not in kings. It's not in Supreme Courts. It's not in elections or elected officials or even a nation. We hope in the Lord. But we rejoice when Things like that, like the like the ruling in, in the Dobbs case, happen because we know that that pleases the Lord. So, all right. So here we are, Proverbs chapter six. Our text today, verses six through eleven. The word of God says this: Go to the ant, O sluggard; consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares. Her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let's pray. And Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts today. We know that it is the Word of God wielded by your Spirit that makes any real change in us. And so, Father, we pray that your word would just have, you'd have your way in us with your word and your spirit today. And we'd be open to that. I pray that you'd break down resistance to that. And that we would, we would be hungry to hear what you have to teach us. And we would learn this. And Lord, what is at stake is wasting our lives, and we don't want to do that. We want to live and make our lives matter for your glory And so, Father, I pray that you give us ears to hear, hearts that are receptive. Help us to be sensitive to conviction of your Spirit. Help us to not be stubborn and not be proud. And, Lord, I pray that the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has bore our sin on the cross and that we stand before you righteous, not because we are good, not because we have done good, but because Christ has bore our penalty, and we stand in His righteousness alone. I pray that that message would be clear, and that we would leave here standing on that, embracing that, believing that. And Lord, we thank you for the United States of America. We thank you for this country in which we live. We know that our ultimate citizenship is with you in heaven, but Lord, you have by your grace saw fit that we would be also citizens here. And Lord, I, I pr- we, we pray for our nation. We pray that revival would break out. We, we pray that more and more people would turn by faith to you, seeing all other paths as empty. And we pray for the American church, that she would burn with fervor for your glory and be done with the world's ways. And I pray for any in this room today who are hurting, who come here suffering, struggling. I know there are at least a few. Lord, I I pray that you will show them your grace and use all the means that are here. Lord, the body of Christ, your church, the word of God, your spirit, prayer. We pray, Lord, for those who are hurting. We pray that you would show comfort and show your grace. And Lord, I pray for your help this morning. I pray that I'd be able to explain this well, powerfully, compellingly, and with grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I don't know if you've seen the hilarious animated movie called Sing. I watch animated movies, um, and that's mostly because I have kids. But um, this one's really funny. If you haven't seen it, you should go, I I think it's funny. It's been a while since I watched it. But there's a great clip in the movie that really like stands out, kind of stood out to me, and it kind of epitomizes the spirit of laziness, okay? So there's this one little scene where this this Eddie, he's like a sheep person, thing, you know, a kid <laughs> uh, who, who's an adult, but he's living with his parents still, and he's eating Doritos out in their pool house. He's a rich kid, you know, and Buster comes by because he's trying to, you know, get some things done and talk to him and get some help from him and get him back in the game. And so he, he asks him, he's like, why are you living out in your pool house? And uh, without looking away from his game, so you got to picture this, he's eating Doritos and he's playing Xbox or whatever. Uh, but Eddie says, uh, and here's the quote, okay? My folks want me to be more, you know, independent. This is why he's in the pool house of his parents. My folks want me to be more, you know, independent. I guess they even hooked me, uh, they even hooked me up with this life coach dude. I guess he's going to help me find my purpose in life. I thought I had one. He wipes off some crumbs of Doritos, but it turns out I, I, it was not the right one or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, it's a quintessential picture of a, of, a, of a lazy, no direction in life, bump on the couch kind of young man who needs a wake-up call, right? A wake-up word like what's in Proverbs 6 about laziness so that he'll get with the program and stop being a bum, stop being a burden to his parents. And here's the thing, most of you aren't like that. Maybe some of you are tempted to laze around on your couch, uh, live off of your parents or live off of the government or play video games when you should be working, maybe. But my sense is that most of you aren't like that. The ones I know, you're, you're, you're not like that. But here's the thing, laziness and sloth is usually way more subtle than that. Way more subtle and more pervasive. It does sometimes look like that, but a lot of times it's much more clever and hidden and just a root in our hearts that takes, that produces all kinds of bad fruit. Laziness can be pervasive to many different aspects of our lives. It can show itself in our relationships, in our spiritual lives, in our home responsibilities, in our parenting, and certainly in our work. It can show itself in many different spheres of our life. Not merely our employment, but certainly in our employment. And you can see that here. At first, this proverb, if you read all of Proverbs 6, I didn't read it all this morning, but if you read it all, it it might seem a little disjointed to you, you know, like dealing with a lot of different subjects, um, independent issues, several disconnected aspects of our life. So verses 1 through 5 address kind of business deals and relationships. Verses 12 through 19 seem to be addressing like various aspects of personal integrity, like how to conduct yourself in your relationships, being humble versus being proud, speaking with honesty and with integrity. And then verses 20 through 35 return to the theme that Pastor Bert Newman preached on last week, which if you missed it, you should go back and listen. It's one of the best sermons I've heard on that subject, namely marital fidelity and the dangers of going outside or beyond marriage. And lumped right in there are verses 6 through 11, which are clearly meant as a warning and instruction against sloths, And laziness and prod us towards a posture of diligence. So it could be a random collection of themes. A lot of Proverbs are like that. Or what I think is the case, and a lot of scholars agree, is that these themes are all related. In a sense, they all interact with one another. You see, sloth isn't just the avoidance of physical work, okay? It's possible to be slothful in so many spheres of our lives. We can be lazy in our finances. And he talks about finances here and business dealings. We can be lazy in our personal lives. We can be lazy with our personal integrity. We can be lazy in our relationships with other Christians. And we can certainly be lazy in our marriages, in our parenting, and in our fight for purity. Laziness is a pervasive danger. And it's a lot like sleeping at inappropriate times. You know, like during a sermon. (laughs) We get lulled into it. Our eyes grow droopy. And we just all of a sudden find ourselves asleep. And you better hope you're not like driving down the road when that happens. And we need to wake up. We need to wake up. We need a wake-up call. And you know it takes a lot more than a life coach to wake us up from this kind of laziness. We need the word of God wielded by his spirit in our hearts. So we need the wake-up call of Proverbs 6. That's why we're taking a Sunday to press into Proverbs 6, 6-11 through 11, so that God, through his word, might wake us up to the danger of laziness in all of its forms. We get one shot at this life, friends. One shot. We don't have time to waste it on being lazy in any area of our life. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're pressing into this with our confidence in the work of Christ. In us... And the work of Christ for us. And a desire to have holy ambition for the work of life and all of its aspects that that God has for us. So, analyzing this proverb, it seems to me that there are two teachers and two lessons in these few verses. The first teacher is the mighty ant, And the lesson she teaches us is to consider the value of diligence and a few other things. And then the sluggard teaches us The lesson we see, he's a teacher too, and the lesson we see from him is to to beware of laziness. And it's deadly, overwhelming consequences. So two teachers and two lessons, one to consider and one to beware. And that's how we'll walk through these verses. So let's start with the ant. What does the the ant teach us? Verse 7 says, Without having any chief or officer or ruler, go to the ant, O sluggard, you know, just, just because I want to be like a thorough theologian, I decided to do that. I was out working one day in my on my house, and uh, this passage was rolling around in my mind. And uh, I stopped, and I saw some ants, and so I, I actually did it. I, I went to the ant, <laughs> and I started watching it, and it must have looked really funny. You know, here I am thinking about laziness, and I'm supposed to be working, and I'm sitting there looking at an ant, but... Watching this ant, and you know what he did? This, this dandelion, he had found this dandelion that had been clipped, I guess, from mowing or whatever. And he was pulling the seeds off of dandelion, you know, and he was walking away with them. Okay, so this, if you know what a dandelion is, it's like puffy on one side and it's long. So this thing's way bigger than him and he's carrying it. And, you know, being a good theologian, I reached out and I pulled it out of his hand, you know, out of his grip, you know. And you know what he did? The guy went back and got another one, Right? And so, you know, I did it again. <laughs> a couple more times. Anyway, uh, man, what an ant. I mean, ants, ants are workers. Ants are workers. Now, there's a couple of things that the ant teaches us, though. Okay? Beyond that kind of thing. One more obvious than the other. Okay? One, one, a few things the ant teaches us just from this passage. One more obvious than the others. The obvious thing is that the ant does not need outside other ant influence or motivation or exhortation to make him do his work. Okay, so that's why he says he doesn't have any, uh, without having any chief or officer or ruler. He isn't just working to please other ants. Ants aren't ant pleasers. And the implication of that for us, we want to consider because we want to be wise, right? Is that our primary motivation cannot simply be to please other people. We we do not do the labor that we do simply because we have an employer who's watching or because we want others to think of us in a certain way. It's not our motivation. It's not our highest motivation. That's the obvious thing we see from uh, the ant in verse 7. The less obvious thing verse 7 teaches us is actually a theological point. And we can see it once we ask the question, okay, if he doesn't have any... Like chief or officer or ruler, then what motivates him? What what is it that motivates the ant to do the work that he does? She does. So the ant doesn't have another ant, say a chief ant or an officer or ruler, saying, Get to work, or you know, at the end of the day, show me what you've done. Miss Ant. So what motivates her? If my worldview were purely like naturalistic, I would say instinct. Instinct is why the ant does what the ant does. But that's not my worldview because I know that, I mean, that's it is instinct, right? But that instinct didn't just happen by itself. My worldview, like I know there's a creator involved and the creator put it in the brain and the body of that ant to work at the appropriate time doing the appropriate thing. In other words, the ant's primary motivating force is not other ants. It is God. Consider her ways and be wise. The reason why you should be diligent with the work of your hands is not other people. It is God. Listen to how Paul brings these truths together in Colossians 3, verses 22 through 24. He says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as man pleasers, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." This is Paul teaching Christians who were servants, okay? So these bond servants, people who, because of paying off some debts or other reasons, um, became indentured servants. And, and, and this is him giving Christian bond servants some direction. And what he's saying is, give it your whole heart, bond servants, employees. But not simply because there are other ants watching, or simply because your employer is is there, or because you want to please people, give it your whole heart because you serve the Lord Christ. Christian, you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Because of his death for you, and his resurrection from the dead, and the work of his spirit in your life, you're his. If you're trusting in him today, he has bought you. You serve the Lord Christ. That lower work ethic of the world, the the, the lower motivations of pleasing men, it ought to be dead in you. Now you serve the Lord Christ. Friends, if your primary motivation for working really hard is your paycheck or moving up the ladder or pleasing your employer or your spouse or looking good in front of other people, having the best ranch, you're doing it wrong. Your work ethic ought to emanate from the reality that you serve the Lord Christ. That's the lesson from the end, verse 7. The primary motivation, the primary motivating force is not other ants. It is God. Now look at verse 8. It says she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. Now, there are a few observations that we could spend time on and and take note of here. But I want to stress mainly one. And it's the one that leads me to to a definition of diligence, which I think is the opposite of laziness. Gathering food in harvest, preparing it in summer means... Doing the appropriate thing in the appropriate time. And I think that's the definition of diligence, the opposite of laziness. Doing the appropriate thing in the appropriate time. Laziness looks at the appropriate thing of the day, right? And thinks, I can do that later. I don't have to do that now. A lazy person needs the pressure of the last minute to be motivated enough to do the work that he's to do. He does not do the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Not so the ant, nor the one who has considered her ways and is wise. That person seeks to do the right thing at the right time. Doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time with all of your heart, with your ultimate aim to please God and not man. That's the lesson of the ant. Consider that, friends, and be wise. Think about why you, what you do, all the things that you do in light of that. And I don't just mean your job. I, I think this ought to shape like all the spheres of your life. Your primary motivation for working really hard as a dad to, to train up your children. It's, it's not to please them. It's not to please your wife. It's not to please other church members so you, you just look like a really spiritual dude. But because you serve the Lord Christ... And you can just work that formula through all of your responsibilities. Your work in marriage, your service to the church, your volunteer work, you running your ranch, your your primary employment, the work that you do at house, the way you approach your studies in college or in high school, or your work in relationships with other Christians. I mean, this is sweeping in its implications for the way we live our lives. We put... We put our whole heart into doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time because we serve the Lord Christ. That's the positive side of this, okay? The positive lesson to consider. The positive example of the ant. The negative example to observe or lesson that we should beware is that of the sluggard. Look at verses 9 through 11. I'll just read that again. It says, How how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You know, the sluggard sluggard is basically doing everything the ant does not do, right? This sluggard person is doing the opposite of what the ant does. Instead of doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time, the sluggard is in bed when he should be up and about. And that's not a picture of merely getting caught up on your, like, rest on a Saturday morning after a hard week's work. This is a picture of one's rest, one who is resting when he should be working. The appropriate thing to do at that time is work, but he would rather sleep or play or watch or scroll. There is something in the nature of laziness that makes it exceptionally dangerous to us. You, you can see it in this passage and you can see it even more clearly in some other passages in Proverbs and in the Bible. The exceptionally dangerous thing about laziness is that it's, it's, it's so subtle, so subtle. The slugger does not saying I won't work. Now, that, that would be obvious, and, and laziness doesn't thrive in light. It doesn't thrive in what's obvious. Laziness thrives in subtlety. The subtlety of saying, a little more sleep, a little more sleep. It sounds reasonable almost, right? A little more sleep. In Hebrew, the words sleep and slumber, they're, they're plural, and you can't really do this in English, but it, saying it like this kind of conveys in my mind the thought there. The sluggard is saying, I just need a few more sleeps. I just need a few more slumbers, a few more hand foldings to rest. Then I will get up and do what the day requires. That's how laziness thrives in subtlety. And you can see the subtlety of laziness in other ways too, especially in the way that it uses excuses, okay? Um, Here are the excuses, just a desire for a tad bit more rest, you know? Snooze button. But later in Proverbs, the wise sage shows us how ridiculous and clever our excuses to be lazy become. So turn with me, if you, if you would, to Proverbs 26. And I'm going to read two verses in this chapter, but first one is verse 13. Proverbs 26. So here's same sluggard, okay? So he's not in bed anymore. He's up. He knows he has work, but instead of Getting at it, here's what he says. Proverbs 26:13. The sluggard says there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Now that might not make sense to you until you really try to give it some thought. Like why, why is he saying this? You know, in the Middle East where this was written and in the day that it was written, there was about enough chance to see a lion there then as there is here now. Okay? Um... So it's, it's like me complaining that I cannot do something outside today because I might see a mountain lion and he might eat me, okay? Now, before, I'm sure, that sounds ridiculous on its face, but you know, the very first time I went into the woods here in Nebraska to go watch deer, I saw a mountain lion, I thought I'd see one every time after that. I didn't know they were so rare, but I saw a mountain lion. The very first time I went into the woods, I saw a mountain lion. So the risk is real. (laughs) And in the twisted way that our minds work, we can take any risk, no matter how remote or how ridiculous and use it to avoid doing the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. The clever and subtle laziness of our heart finds whatever excuse it wants to keep from doing work. I don't know, it could be anything. If I make the first step in reconciliation, they might reject me. There's a risk, and I don't want to do that hard work. And note something else. Proverbs 26 makes it clear about the twisted way our minds work. Our excuses that are ridiculous on their face actually seem wise to the sluggard. In our arrogance, they seem wise. Proverbs 26:16 says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Instead of hearing the correction of wise people in our lives, the sluggard really values his own opinion. He puts a lot of stock in the way he sees the world and his life and the risks and the value or the lack of value of doing what is right and appropriate at the appropriate time. He values his thoughts and his perspective and his opinion more than seven men who can answer sensibly. If you think of it, This is the perfect storm for a wasted life, right? The the subtlety of my own laziness, demonstrated by excuses and twisted thinking and shielded from real wisdom by a thick layer of hubris. That will shipwreck your life. That will destroy your relationships and that will introduce significant regret in your old age. I think we should beware of the lesson of the sluggard. Note that there are always consequences to being lazy. Verse 11 makes it clear. And the writer is emphasizing the suddenness of those consequences and the too lateness of those consequences. Poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. In other words, those consequences will come not when you have the opportunity and the foresight to avoid them or get by them or get through them. This poverty and want, this not having what you need when you need it will spring out of the shadows when you don't expect it. And you won't be ready to defend yourself. Laziness has consequences and they come suddenly, and they overtake you. And here's the thing, friends. Being a pastor these many years, I've had the vantage point to see this really well. I have sat at the deathbed with people. And I've heard them say their end-of-life regrets. If, if, if I had only taken these relationships more seriously, if, if I could have known that life is so short, if I only would have known back then when I thought I had all the time in the world, that life is so screaming short. Oh, I wouldn't have wasted those years. Let me just paraphrase that. I wish I had grasped and believed that laziness, not doing what is appropriate when it is appropriate to do it, would lead to massive missed opportunities that I cannot get back. Laziness has consequences. And if you decide not to consider the lesson of the ant or to beware the lesson of the sluggard, you will learn these lessons the hard way. And despite your proud self-assurance that you'll be able to work it out on that day, you, you won't. Poverty and want will come like a robber. Now, I have left the word work undefined and kind of nebulous to this point. So before I wrap this completely up, we should put some hands and feet to this and we should do so from the vantage point of the gospel. We had vacation Bible school here a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and I'm just gonna read their key passage for the week uh, to inform our thinking about the nature of our work, okay? So if you want, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 It says, for we, listen to this, this is so good, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I I love that, and I, you know, I'd love, I'd love for you to go home and dwell for a while on all of Ephesians chapter 2, especially verses 1 through 10. In fact, uh, when we do the Lord's Supper in a few moments, I'm going to read all of that because it's so good. It is so good. Um, It is the gospel. This is the good news of what we once were, namely, dead in our trespasses and sins, without any life. And what we, all those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, now are, namely, saved by grace alone, through faith alone alone, based on the work of Christ alone. And this passage goes to verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, you've been saved by God's work. God worked so that you could be saved so that you might walk in the good works which God has prepared for you beforehand. This is our purpose. This is our highest aim in this life. And to this, we must, in the first place, apply the lesson of Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. You know, Eddie was right in that clip from the movie Sing. He did have the wrong purpose in life. He did. He had a purpose in life, whether he could articulate it or not, and he had the wrong one. He did need someone to tell him the right one, but not some life coach. The real understanding of our purpose in life is only by the word of God. That's where we learn. You were created. You were saved to walk in good works. You were created to walk in the good work of loving God and treasuring Christ above all things and loving one another and serving other people And making this gospel, making our Christ known. This is our work. All the many things that we do in this life ought to play into that. They ought to be a part of that. Every bit of it. All of your labor ought to go towards that. All of your work. All of what you do at home. All of what you do on the ranch. All of what you do in school. It ought to all come together for that. The good works that you are created to walk in. Friends, if you will apply Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, to your life in all of its fullness, it will change everything. It should change everything. God, through Christ, has transformed you, He has good works for you to walk in. Consider the lesson of the ant and set your face to do what is appropriate at the appropriate time with your ultimate motivation and your highest aim to please God and not man. Beware the lesson of the sluggard. Beware thinking that you can get to this later. I mean, how often do we think about that with our spiritual lives? I'll get to it later. I'll get serious about God later. Beware that kind of laziness. Beware resting when you should be working. Beware the excuses your mind makes for why it's okay to put that off. Beware. Beware the pride that keeps you from listening from the sense of others, from the sense of sermons even. Think of the context of your life where this needs to be applied. Think of how you approach your spiritual life. Think about it. Ant-like or sluggard? How about your home life? How about your interactions with your parents? How about your interactions with your children? Your spouse? Your neighbor? How about your job? Students, how about your studies? How about the way you do church? Oh, may the gospel so radically shape us in these areas for his glory so that we don't find ourselves one day in a dark alley faced with the robber, unprepared and too late. I'm going to pray and then I've asked Taylor S. Motherly, my brother in the Lord, to come and share how God has used him this last year and the work that God has done in him. And then we're going to celebrate that, celebrate God's work by taking communion together, taking the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the work that you've created for us to walk in. Oh Lord, help me not to be lazy with that. Help me not to think I can do that tomorrow. I can do that next week. A little sleeps, a few more sleeps, a few more slumbers. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to do the appropriate thing at the appropriate time. Help me to live with the kind of, I pray that you'd help all of us to live with the kind of urgency that this life, this short, quick, vapor-like life demands. So that we might use our life for your glory. So that we might not regret, in our old age, wasted years. Oh Lord, I pray that you'd help us to apply this to so many areas of our lives. And Lord, we pray together for Taylor. Speak through him now in the next few moments. I pray that we would would see your work in him as he shares. And we would rejoice in that work. In Jesus' name, amen.